Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. So welcome to Beth El. So about the ambassador, he's a distinguished fellow at the Council for Foreign Relations. Previously, he was the John C. Whitehead Distinguished Fellow in International Diplomacy in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. From February 2015 to March 2018, he served as Executive Vice President of Brookings. Ambassador Index served also as, as the US Special Envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations from July 13 to June 14. And prior to his time as Special Envoy, he was Vice President and Director of the Foreign Policy Program and Senior Fellow and Founding Director of the Center of Middle East Policy at Brookings. And of course, most and foremost, we remember how you served two terms as US Ambassador to Israel from April 1995 to September 1997, and from January 2000, 2001. And we almost overlapped. <laughs> it is, that's why it's such an honor to be here with you, to, you know, I was a student at Hebrew University at, in 2000, in 97, and, to now get your perspective on Israeli politics, on diplomacy, um, is really a wonderful opportunity for us. Stay tuned. Ask, think about your questions uh, that you brought tonight. And I don't know if you also can, maybe that's my question, relate a little bit to what's going on in Ukraine and Israel at the end, that would be very insightful too. Thank you so much. Everybody, please welcome Ambassador Martin Indek and Rabbi Yankovic. Thank you so much, Rabbi Nitzan Stein-Koken and Beth El for hosting us. Thank you all for being here, friends on Zoom and friends here in the room. It's great to see you. We're celebrating the holiday of Purim next, next week. And one of the themes in Purim, I believe, is that creating change can occur in many different ways. Mordechai is the outsider agitator. Esther is the insider change maker. Today, we need outside institutions, NGOs, religion, education. And we also need inside diplomats, people in government. And the first Jew, of course, Abraham himself was a diplomat in terms of how he operated globally. And so we, have, we hold in high esteem those who uh, operate in such an arena to create change. And we need them and they need us on the outside as well. And so it's great to um, be able to be in conversation tonight with someone who is not only a diplomat, but a historian. And in this book, which I hope you'll pick up if you haven't yet, which I've been enjoying immensely, learning a lot, uh, about 700 pages, um, is, is really worth the read and very much worth the conversation. So Ambassador, thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Mark. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. I have to say, if I may, that it's a, this is um, the first in-person event that I've had uh, since uh, December because of the Omicron uh, surge and it's a real pleasure to have the opportunity 
for an in-person exchange, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Very good. So I think we should actually start with, as the rabbi mentioned, where, um, what's on our mind the most, if that's okay. Um, you're in regular touch with Dr. Kissinger. I think you said you men interviewed him 12 times for this book. And so you probably have a hunch of what he would think about the current situation. If Dr. Kissinger were in his role now, how would he respond to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? So uh, he hasn't written anything about it recently. Uh, that's because, believe it or not, at the age of 98, uh, he's finishing a second book this year. First one you may have seen he wrote with Eric Schmidt on artificial intelligence. Um, but this book that he's completing now is on uh, great statesmen that he's known. And he's uh, written profiles of their statesmanship from Maggie Thatcher to Richard Nixon, of course, to uh, Lee Kuan Yew and Conrad Adenauer and Charles de Gaulle. And uh, he told me after he, he read my book, he decided to add Sadat to the Pantheon. Uh, so he's been hard at work on that. He hasn't therefore uh, engaged in the public policy debate as he would normally do on the subject. But we have had a chance to talk to him about it. And he has written about it in the past, and particularly he wrote about it in 2014 uh, during the crisis over Russian annexation of Crimea. Um, so uh, it, it's interesting uh, because what I write about in the book about the Yom Kippur War has um, some interesting similarities with, with the crisis uh, in Ukraine today. And of course, the Yom Kippur War was the war in which Kissinger as Secretary of State uh, negotiated the ceasefire and then used, uh, came out of that ceasefire with uh, launching of peace process between Israel and the Arab states that went to war with it. And that uh, he was able to use to lay the foundations of the American-led uh, Arab-Israeli peace process. Uh, a lot of the things that he did there uh, informed his approach to uh, the Ukrainian crisis. First of all, it is... Um, his view, out of crisis comes opportunity, but, uh, and, and his view always that was a, a crisis was a plastic moment. He shaped uh, the outcome through diplomacy, uh, either for good or for bad. In the case of Ukraine, if the outcome of this war is the Russian uh, absorption of Ukraine, uh, then it will not only be a victory for aggression, unprovoked aggression, and uh, the trammeling of the principle of independence and sovereignty and independence of states, particularly small states, and therefore the undermining of fundamental principle of the international order that Kissinger uh, worked so hard to promote. Um, but it will also have the effect 
of, uh, if you know your geography, of putting Russia on the border of five NATO countries. Uh, that in itself, coming off this war, will create a very unstable situation. In effect, Cold War II, uh, in which will will be highly unstable and and very dangerous. A way that produces what he calls a balance of dissatisfaction, uh, in which uh, neither side can be uh, will be satisfied, but there will be a sufficient balance of of dissatisfaction to create a, a stable order. And that's what Kissinger is always about, is, is, is in order over peace. Order in his life, personal life, from the chaos of fleeing Nazi persecution in Germany and coming to the United States, and order in the international system, which he has devoted his professional life to. So the balance of dissatisfaction that he would would want to see come out of this uh, horrendous uh, war is one in which Ukraine would uh, maintain a, an, an independence and a sovereignty, uh, free to choose its, and I'm quoting him now, free to choose its political and economic associations, and that includes Europe, that is to say, be free to associate with the EU. But it should not be a member of NATO. His model is Finland. Uh, and if you know uh, your history, you know that Finland is, a, the way he describes it, is a, a fierce independence with a strong cooperation with the West, but a careful avoidance of institutional hostility to Russia. Uh, in other words, a neutrality between West and East. He talks about it as Ukraine as neither side's outpost, but a bridge between them. So that's, that's the basic uh, principle that he would be seeking to achieve um, if he were charge of, of the diplomacy. So, so in this moment, uh, there are those who, uh, everyone has their heart open to Ukraine, witnessing my maternity ward, I mean, a hospital that bombed today, um, and just how horrific this is. And I, I've been listening to President Zelensky's speeches, as many of us have been. And um, there are those who are very afraid of escalation and want the West to be very careful in, in terms of the, the, that escalation. And there are those who feel we need to show strength in the face of a tyrant and do much more. In your view, is the Biden administration doing enough right now? And how far do you think they can go? Well, I think, I think that, yes, the Biden administration is actually doing, doing uh, its best um, in a very complicated and dangerous uh, situation. Uh, the, the potential escalation to to an all-out in effect world war uh, between NATO and and, and Russia uh, that would engulf the continent uh, is very high uh, and 
while it's entirely understandable that people would want to see the United States intervene with force and, and uh, confront Russia, uh, I, I don't uh, believe there's um, sufficient sentiment in support of that outcome uh, in the United States. And that's why Biden, from the very beginning, took the idea of confronting Russia with force off the table. But there is uh, a lot that the Biden administration has done. And frankly, to me, uh, it's been very surprising. Uh, I expected that um, the talk of uh, massive consequences that Biden used in the run-up to this war uh, was likely to fall short. And what we've seen instead is uh, an, a fast, much faster than expected impact of sanctions. And that is because uh, the heroism uh, as embodied in President Zelensky, but in the heroism of Ukrainian people in the face of this unprovoked aggression and this massive armed invasion has galvanized public opinion uh, in the West and in the United States in particular, but in Europe as well, in a way that, that was to totally unexpected. And that has produced both pressure on governments to take stronger measures and the space to do so. So you recall there was no intention of using the SWIFT system for payments uh, as a way of, of sanctioning Russia. Almost immediately that passed by the wayside. Before that, the Germans felt the pressure to cancel the Nord Stream gas pipeline. Now, Biden has done something which he really didn't want to do, which is to impose an oil embargo uh, on imports of oil uh, from Russia. Now, it's true that we only import about 8% of our oil from Russia, but the inflationary effect of an embargo is it's already being felt. And, and $7, I don't know what it is here, but in LA, it's $7 a gallon, and it'll go higher. Um, but because uh, the, the public reaction has been so strong, uh, these economic sanctions now are having a massive impact on the Russian economy. They are, by the way, having a massive impact on Russia's oil exports because nobody wants to buy Russian oil for fear that the sanctions are going to make it impossible to use it. So already Russian oil has been massively discounted. Um, so that's one thing. The economic weapon has proved to be very effective in terms of its uh, impact on Russia. Second thing is the amount of uh, support that Ukraine is getting, military support. Congress has introduced and will pass within the next few days a bill that provides $12 billion of assistance to Ukraine, half of which will go on military assistance. So we're talking about $6 billion in military assistance to Ukraine. That's twice as much as Israel gets in military assistance from the United States in one year. 
Um, already there's been a massive uh, import into Ukraine of anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons. I saw a figure that 17,000 anti-tank uh, weapons have been uh, shipped to Ukraine. That's like three for every Russian tank that's in Ukraine. And you can see how that's having a real impact on, on uh, Russian ability to prosecute the war. So there are a lot of ways in which we can, short of engaging in, a, in another world war, we can blunt the effect of, of the Russian military onslaught, support the Ukrainians, impose real costs on Russia to the point where I believe that we will see, and this is famous last words, but I believe we will see the Russians start to back off. In fact, they've already indicated the first in that, in, in that way. Let me just conclude with this. You remember that Putin called for denazification, um, demilitarization, uh, and he's dropped the denazification. Denazification essentially meant that he was going to change the government. He's now accepted that the government uh, of Zelensky will remain. And his, his spokesman has talked publicly now about the need for neutrality for Ukraine, that it needs to commit not to join any pact, quote-unquote. Now, not to join any pact is a very interesting formula. It's not not to join NATO. It's not to join any pact, which means not a pact with Russia either, that its neutrality would be enshrined. And a neutrality is an outcome, as I say, that Kissinger was argued for is, is the, the, the best way to ensure Ukraine's sovereignty and independence. So it's, it's, it's possible now, can't say that it's likely yet, but it's possible that Putin understands that if he goes into Kyiv uh, with the massive bombardment, the huge loss of life, there's going to be such an overwhelming reaction and then there will be an insurgency and a resistance that will be supported by the West, that it's a kind of lose-lose for him, that he will start to look for a way out. And, and we will know tomorrow the foreign ministers of, of Ukraine and Russia are meeting. The fact that the Russian foreign ministers prepared to meet with the foreign minister of Ukraine is a recognition of Ukrainian independence. They'll be meeting in Antalya in Turkey, and we'll see what will come out of that, but, but we should be watching to see if the Russians actually are willing to back away from Putin's previous insistence that Ukraine was going to be part of Russia. So um, what can, how can Israel play a unique role in this conflict? I think we were surprised. I mean, on what basis did Israel even think they could propose such a role as being a mediator? When there were no planes going into Moscow, all of a sudden on Shabbat, where Bennett, Prime Minister Bennett is Shomer Shabbat, is flying into Moscow. So on the one hand, he's embraced by Putin. Um, and on the second hand, on the other hand, President Zelensky is thanking him for that meeting as well. So can they play a unique role 
and, um, and why do they think they can be mediator? And did their vote in the UN set that back in some way where they had to take a stand? Well, let, let's back up for a minute. Um, Israel, as a, a, a small country that has been the victim of aggression from its neighbors, as a democratic country that identifies with the West, cannot stand idly by while a small democratic nation um, faces an invasion uh, and an unprovoked aggression. Uh, so, you know, that's on the one side. Israel is a light unto the nation. Israel is a, is a country that, that believes in the sanctity of human life, but cannot stand on the sidelines. Uh, while this, these atrocities are being conducted. As a Jewish state upholding Jewish values, yes, as a Jewish state upholding Jewish values cannot be neutral in this situation. On the other hand, Israel has Russia on its borders. Russia is in Syria. Uh, the Russian Air Force patrols the skies of Syria. And as you probably know, Iran is also in Syria with Iranian militias. And Iran is trying to use its position in Syria uh, to ship uh, missiles to Hezbollah so that Hezbollah can use them potentially to uh, rain them on Israeli cities. And, and at the same time, there are these Iranian militias that are trying to move up to the border on the Golan Heights with Israel. And so Israel is engaged in what they call the war between the wars in Syria, bombing almost every other day Iranian positions in Syria. And it's doing so as a result of Russian cooperation. Russia is, in effect, looking the other way while Israel does this. And the Russians kind of sent a warning shot to Israel right at the beginning of their invasion when they ran joint patrol, air patrols with the Syrian Air Force over the Golan Heights, right on the border uh, with Israel. So Israel has to find a way, on the one hand, to take a stand on the side of the righteous, on the side of the Ukrainians in this situation. And of course, there's a 300,000 strong Jewish community that's also being uh, uh, attacked in this process. But on the other hand, it has to act in a way that it avoids provoking the Russians in a, in a way that would prevent them from protecting their security interests um, that are affected by what's happening in Syria. Uh, so, on the one hand, the foreign minister comes out and condemns the Russian aggression and Israel votes uh, and co-sponsors the UN resolution condemning the Russian aggression. And on the other hand, the prime minister says nothing about Russia and instead 
promotes this role of Israel as a mediator, exactly as you described it. Now, I don't, I mean, I, I think it's, it's good that he's trying. I think that his role um, is very limited. Um, the, as I said, the Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers are meeting directly. They don't need Israel's mediation. Israel's not brokering a deal on humanitarian corridors. That arrangement was worked out directly by the Russians and the Ukrainians. Israel's not offering bridging proposals. Uh, Bennett is not acting as Kissinger here, um, trying to devise a, a ceasefire as Kissinger did in the 1973 war. Uh, he's simply talking to both sides and conveying to each side what he hears from the other side. Now, it may be useful. I wouldn't exaggerate it. What it's doing is creating a, a cover for Israel not taking a stronger position against Russia. So um, you probably read Natan Sharansky's piece in the Wall Street Journal on Sunday. And uh, there he talks about how the majority of Israelis just want to stay out for Israeli security, um, but how he is in the minority group that wants the moral stand. But then he makes a critique, which I'm interested in hearing your response to. He takes his stand against Putin, of course, himself as a former Soviet um, refusenik, uh, the most famous of them. And he urges Israel to oppose Russian aggression more forcefully. But then he makes a turn where he blames President Obama's weakness on Syria and Iran for why Israel still needs to cozy up to Russia over the years to protect themselves from Iran. Um, and he concludes his article by saying, Russia's actions in Ukraine are a test for the free world, which is why my government's reluctance, Israel's reluctance, to oppose them forcefully is disappointing. Yet the reality of Israel's dependence on Russia shows again that if the US wants to lead the free world in confronting tyranny, its actions in confronting tyrants must be clear and consistent. I wonder how you'd respond to Mr. Sharansky there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with him. I think that, that, that Obama's failure to enforce the red line that he himself had drawn in Syria of a Syrian use of chemical weapons was a terrible mistake. Why did and, he do that? And, and, sorry? Why did he do that? Um, because he uh, wanted to avoid war. Uh, because he didn't see how the use of force in that situation uh, was going to uh, help. And in fact, if you look at what happened afterwards, Russia and the United States worked together to remove 98% of the Syrian chemical warfare capability. So in, in effect, and, and Netan, Prime Minister Netanyahu at the time thanked Obama for removing this threat from Israel of chemical weapons from Syria. But the signal it sent that the United States was not prepared to enforce its own red lines was, was a very bad one. Um, and, and it was a message understood around the Middle East that the United States was no longer a reliable protector. Um, so so I, I do think that was a big mistake. I don't agree with, with what he says about the, the um, deal, dealing with Iran. 
But Obama was determined not to get involved in Syria. And he felt that the American people were done with wars in the Middle East. And, and he didn't see how, by using force in Syria, you could actually achieve a better outcome. But having said that, I think that Natan Sharansky is absolutely right. As I said, Israel needs to take a stand. And I believe it should take a stronger stand than it's taking. And I understand very well and sympathize completely with the concern about Russia and Syria as I described it. But let's be realistic about this. Syria is allowing Israel to operate, sorry, excuse me, Russia is allowing Israel to operate in Syria because it serves its interest to do so. So Syria has, is in competition with Iran. Sorry, let me start again. Russia is in competition with Iran in Syria. They are vying for influence there. And it suits Russia, on the one hand, to have Iran helping to, to fight the opponents of the Assad regime. But on the other hand, to have Israel keeping Iran contained in Syria. And that's why it allows Israel to operate. It's not because it's in love with Israel. It's because it serves its interests. So if that's the case, then Russia is not going to take on Israel uh, in Syria and prevent it from operating there. Second point and I write, write about this in, in the book, in 1970, Russia was flying its MiGs over the Suez Canal in support of Egypt, which was engaged in a war of attrition with Israel. You recall that Israel was in Sinai, was up, was, had all its positions on the Suez Canal. There was a war of attrition across the Suez Canal, and the Russians came in and were flying air patrols. And one day, they ambushed Israeli Air Force fighter planes. And, and nothing happened, but, but it was, there was a confrontation there. A few days later, the Israelis ambushed the Soviet MiGs, MiGs, shot six of them down as a way of warning them to, to stay away. What happened? Nothing. The Russians did nothing. And, you know, I do not believe that the, that the Russians will stop Israel from operating because Israel takes a stronger stand. Today, for example, Zelensky asked permission to address the Knesset. I don't know whether you heard about this. And the Knesset speaker denied him his request saying that the Knesset wasn't in session. Well, we all know that the Knesset can be called back into session like that. Israel's not exactly the United States. It takes an hour to get to the Knesset, you know, if you're living in, in the north or south of, of Israel. So they could have done it, but they didn't. Again, because of this neutrality. I think it's a shame. It's a shame that, that 
We are so scared that Israel is so scared of what Russia might do. They're not going to take on the Israeli Air Force when they've got this massive problem in Ukraine. It's easy for me to say. But I think we could, Israel could be a little more courageous in standing up for what is right in this situation. So why did you write this book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of the of Middle East Pol uh, Diplomacy? You could have written about your own diplomatic in engagements, your own role as ambassador. You could have written about some of the recent presidents and secretary of states. But instead of writing as a diplomat, primarily, you wrote as a historian looking back at Kissinger. Why did you write this? And what is your main argument in this book? So uh, I uh, was involved in three efforts to uh, make peace in, in the Middle East, two under President Clinton, and then again as President Obama's uh, special envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. And each of those efforts ended in failure. And the third time, uh, when I was responsible for the negotiations, I decided that while it was easy to blame both sides uh, for the breakdown of, of the peace process, there was something wrong with the practice of American diplomacy as well. And in order to try to understand uh, what had gone wrong, I decided that I would go back and look at where it all began. Um, with Henry Kissinger's diplomacy after the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which, as I said earlier, laid the foundations for the American-led peace process and led to the Israel-Egypt peace treaty and eventually to the Israel-Jordan peace treaty and the Oslo Accords. And I thought that if I went back and did a kind of deep dive into history, uh, that I could divine the lessons of how to and how not to make peace in the Middle East. <clears throat> so that was the, the, the idea behind, behind it. What I discovered in the process was a lot about how to make peace, but uh, that I was operating on a mistaken assumption that Kissinger's purpose was actually not so much to make peace as it was to create order in the Middle East, in an unstable region. And a peace process was a mechanism that became useful for the creation and stabilization of the order. But peace itself for him was a, a questionable idea. Um, he was quite sceptical about the idea that nation states could actually end their conflicts as opposed to find conditions of stability which would ameliorate the conflict. And so he didn't believe in ending the Arab-Israeli conflict. What he thought was that you could start a process that would lead eventually over time to the exhaustion of the Arabs, where they would finally come to accept Israel. And during that time, this elongated process would give Israel time to strengthen itself, to reduce its isolation, 
so that at the point when the Arabs eventually had decided to, to recognize Israel, to normalize uh, relations with Israel and end their conflict with Israel, Israel would be strong enough to make the ultimate territorial concessions that could produce the peace. So from his point of view, this was a process that would take decades. And he simply wanted to move the process forward in a kind of step-by-step -step arrangement, which is what he introduced. That was the process that he had in mind. And you're more intrigued by that or agree with that approach? Well, I'm both intrigued by it. Intrigued by it because he never explained this in his voluminous books on his time in office, he never writes what I just said. Um, so I was intrigued to find, because I, was, I went back and looked at what is now available in the archives, all of his uh, conversations and negotiations are there documented. He was a man of history and a student of history. So he made sure that everything was documented. I'm going to um, take, take a footnote here, if you'll allow me. A lot, of footnotes, a lot of footnotes in this book, actually. No, but it relates to the joke that you were, <laughs> yeah. jokes that you were telling earlier about Kissinger. Um, as it happens, my wife, long before I met her, was Henry Kissinger's secretary when, when he was secretary of, of state. And because he wanted to document everything he said, um, she had to listen in on his phone conversations and, and transcribe what he said. And one day, uh, Elizabeth Taylor walks into the office. In those days, you could, anybody could walk into the Secretary of State's suite. Now you've got to go through, you know, security and clearances. You could just walk right in. You could just walk right in. <laughs> this was the 1970s. <laughs> this was long before Al-Qaeda. And, and uh, suddenly Elizabeth Taylor turns up. Why Elizabeth Taylor? Well, Henry Kissinger was famous for his celebrity girlfriends. And so she, she walks into the office and my wife calls in to to uh, Dr. Kissinger and says, uh, Elizabeth Taylor's here. And he says, oh, get me Brent. Brent, who is Brent Scowcroft, you'll recall, was subsequently National Security Advisor to, to George H.W. Bush. But in those days, he was Kissinger's deputy. Kissinger was both Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. And Scowcroft was his deputy in the White House. So... My wife gets, gets Brent on the phone. And Henry says, Elizabeth is here. Nancy won't understand. Nancy being his then girlfriend, he was about to marry her. Um, and Brent says, no. My wife is writing this all down. She says, no, she won't. He says, what am I going to do? <laughs> I love this idea that the Secretary of State is consulting with the Deputy National Security Advisor about what to do about Elizabeth Taylor. Anyway, so long pause and Scowcroft says, I have an idea. We'll, I'll arrange for her to be invited to Ardashir's tonight. Who's Ardashir? Ardashir's a Haiti, by the way, he just died 
few weeks ago, Ardashir Zahedi was the Iranian ambassador, the Shah's ambassador in Washington in those days. And he was famous for entertaining with massive bowls of caviar, Iranian caviar, and so on. And he was having a party that night. And Scowcroft says to Kissinger, I'll arrange for Ardashir to invite Elizabeth and uh, I will get him to sit her next to John Warner, the very eligible Senator Bachelor from Virginia. And the rest is history because they got married about six months later. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that's the, the, the footnote is that Kissinger recorded everything. He recorded those yeah. kinds of conversations as well. So there it is. It's all in, in, in the documents. And I'm reading through these documents of, these, of his negotiations with Arab and Israeli leaders. And at a certain point, Sadat will say to him, or Yitzhak Rabin will say to him, you know, let's do the big step. Let's try to make peace. And Kissinger will say, no, no, you don't want to do that. He'd say, that's, you know, that's not achievable. He would walk his Arab and Israeli interlocutors back from trying to achieve an end of conflict situation. Because he himself, having studied European history, did not believe in it. And, and that's, that's where I began to understand that there was something else going on. And when I then went back and looked at his academic work and the books that he had written, there you can find his argument that it, peace is dangerous because the pursuit of peace too, with too much enthusiasm can achieve its opposite. It's called it the paradox. Intifada. And, and in fact, that it leads to, can lead to war. First World War, Second World War appeasement was precisely what he was concerned about. And yes, in fact, that's what we ended up doing. We ended up pursuing an end of conflict deal at Camp David in 2000. And, and we ended up with the Intifada and the destruction of the whole peace process. So forgive me if I'm wrong about this because I didn't get the chance to research it. But do I have a vague recollection, uh, recollection that you were the first Jewish U.S. ambassador to Israel? Is that, oh, that's correct? Okay. So I wonder if I this- I was the second also. Oh, oh very nice. Because okay, I was sent back yes. by, <laughs> by So um, talk to me about, talk to us about the allegation or the concern about dual loyalties within the office. And I want to read from your book here. Is it safe to say that Nixon was not a hard anti-Semite, but a soft anti-Semite? in that he's not willing, he's willing to have a first Jewish Secretary of State, but he has his concerns about him. So you write numerous times about this. I'm gonna read from page 86. You write, Nixon viewed Kissinger's back channel diplomacy as the best way to proceed. As he told Alexander Haig, whom he would soon appoint as the chief of staff, we can't let state handle the Mideast. They'll screw it up. But the president's assessment of what needed to be done in Kissinger's channel had changed quite dramatically and he continued to harbor doubts about whether his national security advisor was the man for the job. Nixon said, I just can't see Henry doing it, he said to Haig. The president recounted that he had told Kissinger after the elections, the time has now come that we've got to squeeze the old woman, meaning Golda Meir. 
He then expressed his concern that Kissinger's blind spot when it came to his Jewish identity had not dissipated. He's totally attacking what the Jewish agenda wants. He doesn't want to do anything with the Israelis except reassure them and get them more arms. That was an astute appraisal of what his national security advisor was up to, though Kissinger would have been deeply upset by Nixon's suggestion that he was pursuing this strategy to serve Jewish interests rather than the American national interest. So Kissinger has to walk this fine line with a soft anti-Semitic president who is questioning his dual loyalties. And yet as a refugee, as a Jew, as someone who clearly wants Israel's success, he wants to work towards that. How did you experience that as the first Jewish ambassador to Israel, having to kind of prove yourself? And how did, how well do you think Kissinger managed that, that challenge? Yeah. Uh, well, the environment was very different for me right. to Kissinger. You use the word soft anti-Semite, I suppose, but let's face it, Nixon was an anti-Semite. And, and he, you're right, I mean, he picked Kissinger to be his national security advisor, uh, but he told Kissinger that he could not deal with the Middle East. That, that was to be the job of the Secretary of State at the time, uh, William Rogers, this is in the first term, Nixon's first term. And, and the reason he didn't want Kissinger dealing with the Middle East, he says it in his biography, rather than Nixon does, is because he was Jewish. Uh, and he believed that Kissinger had a loyalty to Israel on this issue. Uh, and this was deeply offensive to Kissinger. It took him three years to subvert Bill Rogers and get control of the Middle East portfolio. Um, but, but, you know, the idea that he would be prevented from dealing with it because he was Jewish was, was fundamentally an anti-Semitic uh, notion. Now, in my time, I worked for President Clinton, who was a philo-Semite. He was the exact opposite of Nixon. Uh, he loved Jews, and he, he appointed Jews to all manner of positions. Um, and his Secretary of State, Warren Christopher, was determined to appoint a Jewish ambassador. There had never been a Jewish ambassador to Israel up until that point for the same reason. The State Department believed that it was wrong to appoint a Jew to that position because they would be conflicted uh, in their loyalties. Uh, but Warren Christopher, who was a real wasp, but, but was determined to break that uh, taboo. And um, so I was sent there uh, as the first Jewish ambassador. Now, I have to say that Yitzhak Rabin, who was prime minister at the time, was worried about me uh, because he feared that I would be accused of dual loyalty and, and that that would affect my ability to be uh, an effective ambassador. Uh, but, you know, as I said, I was working for a president who was a philo seminite was fundamentally pro-Israel. So there was no conflict for me between advancing the American national interest. Was that different in the Obama administration from Clinton administration? Uh, no, not at all. No, Obama was, was similar. Yeah. Yeah. Obama loved Jews too, surrounded himself with Jews. 
he's regarded, you know, as anti-Israel, but that's a complete, I think, misinterpretation of, uh, uh, of what he, he was doing. I mean, he, he identified with Israel as a, uh, as, as a Jewish state very strongly, backed up that with a, with a strong commitment to Israel's security. Um, he was the one that negotiated with this 10-year MOU to give Israel, to ensure Israel's security assistance for, for the next decade. Um, he did a great deal for Israel in the security realm. So for me, no, there was, there was never, I never faced the kind of um, accusation of dual loyalty that Kissinger had to live with, um, both in the White House and in the State Department. And, and for that reason, he had to disguise his agenda. Uh, and he would often um, position himself as being, you know, critical of the Jews. And so there are a lot of quotes, really unsavory quotes, uh, from the tapes, the Nixon tapes, uh, where Kissinger would say things against the Jews. Um, and, and you don't believe he believed those? No. I argue in the book, and I demonstrate in the book, that in fundamental ways, he was, he was advancing um, Israel's interests. He strongly believed, as I do, that they served American interests. There was no conflict there. But his approach was designed to strengthen Israel. So, for instance, I was talking about his step-by-step -step diplomacy. Part of the reason why he wanted an incremental, gradual approach to making peace was his belief that Israel could not withdraw to the 67 borders in one go, as Eisenhower had made Israel do after the 1956 Suez War. And therefore, he sought to shield Israel from those demands. And Nixon wanted to impose a settlement on Israel and force it back to the 67 lines in cooperation with the Soviet Union. Ford also was looking for that kind of deal. And Kissinger would constantly have to kind of manipulate them around to accepting the idea of this smaller step-by-step -step approach that would give Israel the time and the ability to take the risks for peace in a more limited way. So let's look a little bit at the more disturbing side of Kissinger's engagement here. Firstly, the accusation or um, allegation that he was not in support of supporting Soviet Jewry liberation and the quote that is given to him that I think is well documented is the emigration of Jews from the Soviet Union is not an objective American foreign policy. And if they put Jews in gas chambers in the Soviet Union, it is not an American concern, maybe a humanitarian concern. To pile on to that, I think you also documented, as others have, that he um, was in support in the um, Yom Kippur War of Egypt um, uh, invading. Uh, of uh, aggression there. Um, and he delayed the, the shipment of weapons in the Yom Kippur War uh, at a time when Israel was begging for it. So yeah. I wonder if you want to re respond yeah. to this. So, so the first quote is, is particularly egregious. Um, and and uh, 
you know, it, it's, um, I think the, my explanation of it is that he was operating in this anti-Semitic environment where he was always suspect. Mm. And so he was like one of the boys. Mm. But where does this concept come that, you know, that, that this extreme notion that it's not in the American national interest um, to, to be concerned um, about Jews being put in the oven. I mean, uh, that, it, for him, and, and we see it, and it's, I think, uh, the reason that he's still so controversial is that for him, uh, borders were sacrosanct. The, his view of the world was that it was a world of states. And um, what happened within states was not the business of other states. That, that there was the, the concept of sovereignty from his point of view meant that um, there should be no interference in the internal affairs of another country. It was kind of like a chi the Chinese approach. Of course, it wasn't true when it came to Chile, where he was involved in, in the overthrow of a democratically elected government, but that was in America's sphere of influence. So that was kind of, in his view- So he would like, today be opposed to responding to the Uyghur genocide. You say that's uh, internal to China. Yeah. I'm not sure that he said that, but uh, that would right. be consistent right. uh, with his approach, um, uh, which is a kind of realpolitik approach that he's famous for. Um, but when it comes to the Yom Kippur War, um, I want to correct you if you'll allow me. Is that he was not in favour of Egyptian aggression. That's absolutely not not the case. He did not ex expect that the war would break out, and the reason he didn't expect it was because he was supporting Israel with military assistance, such that it had a the balance of power was tipped in Israel's favour, and that he believed would deter Egypt from going to war. Um, and he miscalculated. Uh, Egypt went to war, he was, he was surprised by that. But when the war took place, he saw this, as I said before, as a plastic moment in which he could shape the, a new order in the Middle East that would be more stable than the previous one that led to war. And, and in that context, he needed the outcome of the war to be such that, number one, Israel prevailed because he was committed to Israel, but because he could not have a situation where Soviet-backed Egypt and Syria could defeat American-backed Israel. So Israel had to win. But on the other hand, Egypt had to come out of it in a way that Sadat's, uh, Sadat would have the ability to engage in negotiations with Israel. So he had to preserve a certain degree of dignity uh, for Egypt, which meant that Egypt could not be defeated. Israel had to win, but Egypt couldn't be defeated. This is a very Kissingerian yes. idea. And at the same time, United States had to come out being looking like the one that could deliver in terms of a negotiated solution. 
and yet so Todd had to be preserved to some extent. So we had these four uh, objectives that were in some ways contradictory. Uh, now to do that, he needed Israel to prevail in the war. He needed Israel's military pressure on the Egyptians and the Syrians to be sufficient to get them to accept the ceasefire. And for that, he, he supported Israel getting arms, but he didn't know that Israel was in trouble because Israel didn't tell him. I was there in Israel at the time of that war as a student, and the, the, the Israeli government didn't tell the Israeli public what the situation was for four days. And, and so they didn't tell Kissinger either. So he didn't know how serious it was until the fourth day of the war. That's when he started the resupply process. But at that point, he was trying to avoid an Arab oil embargo. So he was trying to keep the supply of arms at a low profile. Well, um, he had good reason because as soon as they, they launched the major military airlift, the Arabs imposed an oil embargo. So it was not an unreasonable concern of his. But he was trying to do it in a surreptitious way. And the Pentagon was, was uh, not willing to go along with that approach. Basically didn't want to supply Israel, resupply Israel. And so as a result, there was a holdup in the supply to Israel. For him, when he discovered that the, supply, the resupply process wasn't working and Israel had stopped its offensive against the Syrians, then he went to, to Nixon. And Nixon said, give them everything. Do it and do it now and send it you know, on a major military airlift. It was Nixon who made that decision. But for Kissinger, it, it had become a problem because he needed Israel's military pressure on the Egyptians and Syrians to get the ceasefire. Well, when the Israelis, with the military resupply, turned the tables on the Egyptians and Syrians, then he went to Moscow and negotiated the ceasefire. And the Egyptians and Syrians were desperate to stop the Israelis. Mm. So he negotiated the ceasefire, then he went to Israel. And out of Jewish guilt, told them, look, you don't have to observe the ceasefire. You can go on fighting for two more days. So he had committed to the ceasefire with the Soviets, wow. then winks at the Israelis, and they go and surround the Egyptian Third Army in those two days. Um, the Russians cry foul, say, you know, what the hell is going on, the Egyptian Third Army is about to be destroyed, and, and they threatened to intervene militarily to save the Egyptian Third Army. Kissinger cannot abide by the idea that the Soviets would be the one to save the Egyptians. So he declares a DEFCON 3 nuclear alert. Now here's an interesting comparison with what Putin did. Remember Putin in the early days of this, or last week, threatened 
nuclear. Uh, he, he said that he was putting his forces on nuclear alert, threatened use of nuclear force. Um, and Kissinger did the same thing, except he did it in a much more obvious way. Uh, put all of America's nuclear forces on alert. Turns out Putin talked about it, but didn't actually put them, put them on alert. And, and what this tells you in both cases is they don't actually intend to use the nuclear weapons, but they intend to signal what is a red line. For Kissinger, Soviet military intervention, sending troops in, was absolutely unacceptable. He, he wanted to signal that to the Soviets, just as Putin is saying any kind of NATO intervention is unacceptable, and that's a red line. Mm. And so as a, as a result, the Soviets backed off, and Kissinger then turned around and forced the Israelis to uh, free up the Egyptian Third Army, free their stranglehold on the Egyptian Third Army. And, and that led to the ceasefire. Now, subsequently, Israelis complained that Kissinger had robbed them of victory um, by stopping them from destroying the Third Army. And he had. But he did it so that it would be possible for Egypt to enter into negotiations with Israel. Mm. And that led eventually to the peace between Israel and Egypt. So interesting, so interesting. So friends, I wanna um, invite you to line up in the middle if you'd like to ask a question to the ambassador. While you are lining up in the middle, I'm gonna read a question from our Zoom chat here from Jim Slander, um, who's, who asks, wants to ask you, is, is Kissinger's position of new order with no war, not peace, same as your description of the Russian-Finland neutrality model. It's, it's uh, I suppose you could say it's two sides of the same coin. Um, Kissinger, uh, as I said before, is always looking for how to establish a stable order. Peace is, he, he thinks, um, a stretch too, too far, too much to, to achieve in, in the relations between states. So in the case of Ukraine, neutralization is a way of um, stabilizing the order by taking away the uh, need for Russia to go to war um, while preserving Ukrainian uh, independence. Um, and so that the idea of neutrality is not, that does not detract from Ukrainian independence. The, the order that he was trying to create in the Middle East was an order that required something else, not neutrality, required a peace process, not an end of conflict peace agreement, but a peace process. Because the peace process was a way of legitimizing the order by giving the Arabs a sense that their reasonable demands for return of their territory would be met over time. Uh, and, and so he regarded that as essential to the, to the order, that the parties that could disrupt the order had to have a sense of fairness about the system. 
itself. Um, and and so that's for him the was the importance of the peace process. Hi, Dr. Mark Gross. Throughout our adult lives, we've been focused on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, problem. And despite all the American diplomats trying to solve the problem, uh, they were unsuccessful. And then literally overnight, the Abraham Accords occurred and the unthinkable happened. Six, seven Mideast countries suddenly forgot all about the importance of the Palestinians and embraced Israel. And apparently the philosophy is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And then Saudi Arabia probably will join as soon as the crown prince's father passes. I wonder what your thoughts are. First of all, uh, it's interesting that the, the normalization, um, by the way, not by six, it was actually by three and a half, it was um, Morocco, the UAE, uh, Bahrain, and, and uh, Sudan, but Sudan hasn't kind of fulfilled its full normalization uh, commitment yet. But um, uh, that process of accepting Israel and normalizing relations with Israel by these uh, Arab states uh, occurred on Kissinger's timetable. You know, 40 years on, uh, they eventually uh, decided um, to make peace with Israel. And in doing so, the crown prince of um, uh, the United Arab Emirates, what did he say? He said, we're tired of this conflict, which was exactly what Kissinger had expected would happen on his timetable, that they would eventually exhaust themselves with the conflict. Um, and yes, you're right, that they got tired of waiting for the Palestinians and, and decided to move ahead. I think it's important that, that we, we remember that the UAE, which was the prime mover in this, was only prepared to do it if Israel foreswore annexation of the West Bank. So it wasn't, was not ignoring the Palestinians in the first instance. The others went ahead without demanding anything on the Palestinians, Moroccans and the, and the, and the Bahrainis. But the Emirates uh, not only demanded, but succeeded in getting Israel to stop uh, the idea of annexing, which if you remember, the right-wing government, Bibi Netanyahu, was committed to doing that. Um, so they don't get much credit for it from the Palestinians, but they in fact did more for the Palestinians than just about any other Arab country. Having said that, I would say two things. Yes, uh, Saudi Arabia will eventually normalize relations with Israel, but the Crown Prince is on the record and, and repeatedly and again in this big article uh, in The Atlantic that came out this week based on interviews with him, uh, he's very clear that there needs to be um, progress on the Palestinian issue. He doesn't say there has to be a solution. There has to be progress on the Palestinian issue before Saudi Arabia will normalize it. 
So uh, I think that, that uh, he's not just waiting to become king and then he'll give up on it. He needs Palestinian cover. Uh, and having said all of that, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. It's great. There's one, you know, it's, it's amazing to see the warm peace that takes place between, that's taking place between the, the Emirates and the Bahrainis and, and Israel particularly. But it doesn't solve Israel's problem with the Palestinians. And that, in the end, is Israel's problem to solve. Um, and it doesn't get any, any, any easier uh, as time goes on. So, yes, it's great that, that Israel can have normal relations with its Arab neighbours, and it deserves it. Um, but, but it still cannot escape the need to find a way to deal with the Palestinians. Great. I think we have time for two more questions here. I think it's you too. Let's go back to uh, Ukraine and Russia. With all the death and destruction caused by Russia, caused by Putin, not maybe Russia, but by Putin, with all the death and destruction caused by Putin, at some point this uh, war is going to be over. How can there ever be a normal relationship between the world and Russia, number one, if Putin's still in power, and number two, if Putin is out of power? It depends, of course, on how it ends. Um, if it ends in the worst case of, of um, Putin absorbing the Ukraine, um, that will be only uh, as a result of massive uh, loss of, of life on the Ukrainian side. Um, and I don't believe that the war will actually end uh, if he does that, that there will be an insurgency will be supported by the West. It will continue for some time. So it's not exactly clear what, what, what the end state will be. Um, having said that, you know, um, if, if the United States has a very bad history of seeking regime change, um, we did that in Iraq and it, it ended very badly. <laughs> in Afghanistan and it ended with the Taliban back in power. Um, and, and so, you know, I think making that a requirement that Putin be overthrown, uh, even though he deserves it, is, is I think a recipe for, for a bad outcome. Um, the, you know, holding uh, leaders responsible for war crimes is is a process that that has now been institutionalized and there are ways of doing that and Putin's war crimes will be documented are being documented it is, you know it's one of the advantages of everybody having a cell phone uh, and so there may be a war crimes process afterwards uh, like we saw after after uh, uh, the prosecution of of the Serb Serbian Union, so so you know I think that is entirely possible as as an outcome here, but I would just be very wary of making a requirement of a of an end of this conflict, the removal of Putin from office. 
um, because uh, I think that, that that is a recipe for prolonging the conflict rather than ending it. Thank you. Thank you, Rob Schmuley. Thank you, Ambassador. Ambassador Indyk, as you know, at the conclusion of President Obama's administration, President Obama did something that no other American president ever did, withhold the veto of a United Nations resolution that denied any Jewish connection to Jerusalem. How do you reconcile that with your statement that President Obama was pro-Israel? It seems to me, and I'll give up the mic after just the following sentence. We are grateful for President Obama's military assistance to the Jewish state, but it seems to me, Ambassador, in the world of ideas, in the world of narrative, in the world of justice, I'm not sure that President Obama was a friend of the Israeli state. UN Security Council resolution that, that you referred to was a, uh, a, a resolution that uh, condemned um, Israel's settlement activity. You are uh, taking particular wording about Jerusalem um, to uh, claim that, that uh, Obama um, did not recognize, I don't know your exact words, but did not recognize Israel's connection, Jewish connection to Jerusalem. But I mean, you know, first of all, the United States abstained on the resolution. Um, so it didn't vote for it. But secondly, I, I do, do not believe that that was, that was um, the language or the intention of the resolution. Resolution was, was focused on Israel's settlement activity, um, which had been a major uh, problem for Obama's diplomacy. And I say that because I was um, involved in, in the effort to try to uh, negotiate uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace. And, and Netanyahu's settlement policy um, was a major obstacle uh, in our efforts. He was constantly undermining the negotiations. He was announcing, it was like settlement announcements gone wild while we were engaged in, in the negotiations. The, the policy that the Israeli government had been following under Netanyahu had been a, 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 you know, against American policy. American policy was opposing settlement activity because it was seen to be undermining the efforts to achieve peace. Um, and it wasn't just seen to be, it was undermining. Uh, so uh, that's why uh, when the Security Council resolution was put, in terms that fit American policy, um, Obama decided uh, to abstain. Uh, it didn't threaten the legitimacy of Israel in any way whatsoever. It's far-fetched to imagine that it somehow challenged Israel's uh, legitimacy or its existence or anything like that. Uh, and so I think that it's just a, it, you, you, you have misinterpreted uh, the resolution and certainly uh, the intent of President Obama in abstaining. So before I pass it over to Rabbi Stein Koken to, to close off for us, I want to let you know that Bali Beit Midrash is hosting our first in-person Purim uh, next week. We hope you and your families will consider joining us if you don't have a place you go already. Also, we will have Rabbi Joseph Talushkin here in person for our annual Hammerman family lecture at Temple Solel. 
uh, in just a few weeks. We hope you'll join us for that. We are, um, are very active in supporting refugees and asylum seekers at the border. And as you probably read in, in Reuters and other news outlets, Ukrainians are already lined up at the border. If you wanna support our efforts to welcome Ukrainian refugees here in our state, in our country, you're welcome to reach out to us to support us in that. We wanna thank uh, the wonderful Ambassador Indik for his uh, 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 amazing talk tonight and thank um, Rabbi Stein Koken and Bethel for hosting us and our final words. Yeah, thank you. And please pick up some of the leaflets with the information. And Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Steele from Solel is here. So uh, this is going to be a great next event with our partners. Bali Beit Midrash Ambassador Indik, it was such a treat um, to listen to your insights, to connect us to the big politics and the politics of you know, of the world on public and behind the scenes reminds me very much of the Purim story that we're gonna bring up next week, right? On Wednesday, where there's the big powers at play, where there's public opinion formed by two protagonists going at each other and then the delicate negotiations in chamber that, and we Jews are all in the middle of it. And it was, that was a real treat for us to get an insight how this all plays out in our modern world with Israel, with, uh, with Ukraine, with Russia. Thank you so much. The book signing will happen outside where there's also desserts. So I can invite everybody to join us. Put on your jacket. It chills down a little bit. Um, and... You know, I'm sure you're there for a little bit more questions if people want to <laughs> ask you. And just before you head out there for your dessert, your wine and dessert and a uh, chance to talk with the ambassador and get a book, your book signed, Jews can't come together and not pray for peace. So let us pray for peace together in our, for, in our country, in Ukraine, in the Middle East, around the world. Oh, say shalom bin Romav. Israel. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.